Every single day, a flight crew takes off or lands on a runway or taxiway they're not supposed to use. How can we keep this from happening? From the National Business Aviation Association, this is Flight Plan. I'm Pete Combs with your trusted source for business aviation news. It happens far more often than you might think aircraft operating on the wrong surface. In some cases, the consequences are heartbreaking. But NBAA, FAA, and the National Air Traffic Controllers Association, NACA, are working together to reduce the number of wrong surface incidents across the country. Joining me to talk about these efforts, Bridget Singh-Rachtenakel, the runway safety representative for NACA. She's not only an air traffic controller, but an experienced pilot as well. Bridget joins us from Dallas-Fort Worth. Jim Fee manages the Runway Safety Group at FAA. Before his tenure there, Jim was a pilot for a major airline. He's at his office in Washington, D.C. Also coming to us from Washington, NBAA's Director of Airports and Ground Infrastructure, Alex Gertzen. Let's begin with Bridget. You know, you have some remarkable, I'd say even alarming, statistics on wrong surface operations. We have over 50 million takeoff and landings in the national airspace system every year. And out of that 50 million takeoff and landings, we have roughly 1,800 runway incursions. With that being said, about half of those incidents involve just one single aircraft or vehicle. And with regards to wrong surface, which is primarily what we're discussing today, so wrong surface arrivals or departures, we see this occurring about once a day in the system. So a key point to remember is that even with over a 99% success rate, we, ha we have to strive to be 100%, 100% of the time. And the level of risk for these wrong surface events can be pretty significant. Jim, why is it important for us in business aviation to pay particular attention to this issue? The reason it's critical is because uh, this flight operational community is uniquely exposed to the full gamut of our airspace system from the biggest airports with some of the most advanced technology systems that aid in the pilot situational awareness to locations that um, are typically intended just for general aviation that don't really have a lot of these tools to help the pilots and provide situational awareness, instructions, and things like that. So especially the business uh, pilot community is, is exposed to the risk at all of these locations, uh, which is pretty unique. And, you know, Alex, what really surprised me is when these incidents and accidents occur. Pete, absolutely. The challenge is that uh, these occur when we least expect it uh, during the daylight hours and in visual meteorological conditions when we think that we have it easy. We see the airport and we're going for it. And uh, that's, that's when uh, we find ourselves uh, in, in trouble sometimes. Where do these accidents occur? When we talked about why it's important for business aviation to be aware of this, this is not something that happens at the big 20 airports in the United States alone, is it? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So the, the events occur at our busiest airports, um, like Chicago here or Atlanta, uh, down to some of the smallest airports uh, that we have in the system. So it's truly a national risk across our entire system. And really some of the learning that we've done from the data collection is that they 
typically, as Alex said, happen in daylight hours in visual meteorological conditions. They typically happen with good visibility, primarily when pilots are conducting, uh, in some cases, visual approaches. And um, it's, it's a risk that's throughout our system. I wish it were an issue where it's just one type of airport or one set of airports that we could look at, but it's, it's throughout the whole system. I want to talk about some incidents in particular. And I think the first one is one that a lot of us are familiar with that happened at San Francisco. Uh, Jim, what happened there? And, and what, are, what are the takeaways? Sure. We've learned a lot about uh, the event that happened in San Francisco in July of 2017. Uh, the event was investigated by the National Transportation Safety Board that conducted a thorough investigation and allowed us to learn a lot about uh, the event itself. Um, what that first first off, what we learned is the level of risk that's associated with these events. And in some ways, it's somewhat intuitive. If you have a, a flight crew, that lost situational awareness and is approaching a taxiway for landing. It was nighttime. The pilots were conducting a charter visual approach into San Francisco. One of the runways uh, was closed at the time, and the pilots expected to basically see a left and right closely spaced parallel runway configuration. Uh, because one of the runways was closed, the lighting systems were de-energized, so the construction crews could go about their construction project safely. And the other runway was well and normally lit with an instrument approach lighting system. And then the lights from the uh, adjacent taxiway were basically confused for a runway configuration. And the pilots lined up with the taxiway. NTSB estimated that as the aircraft approached the taxiway, they came about 16 to 20 feet above the tails of the four aircraft that were occupying that taxiway. So the level of risk is extreme. And if you can imagine four air carrier aircraft on a taxiway with an airplane attempting to land on that same taxiway. And with that proximity, it really showed that the collision risk for these events can be very significant. Jim, let's talk about some of these other areas where we have the dual parallel taxiways adjacent to a runway. Yeah, that's a, a classical airfield design that we've seen that contributes to events. So specifically at Houston Intercontinental Airport and at Nashville, both locations have a taxiway configuration with two parallel taxiways. When we see a, a pilot that's kind of on the outboard taxiway or the one furthest from the runway, as they get towards the runway environment and get their takeoff clearance, they'll make basically the first left turn, which puts them on the adjacent parallel taxiway, not the runway. And they'll ultimately use that runway for the for the takeoff sequence or for departure. That configuration is, is an example where the airport geometry that's pretty common throughout our airspace system ends up uh, contributing to the loss of situation awareness and ultimately departing on a taxiway as opposed to the runway. Well, Bridget, it's not just when you see parallel runways, but when you see offset parallel runways as well. I'm glad you brought that up. So one of the what appears to be one of the contributing factors with wrong surface incidents is offset parallel runways. So if you look at the data across the NAS, what pilots tend to see first or whichever surface happens to be closest to them, that's the surface that they're tending to land on. And we've seen that in particular at Lincoln and Boise. What role does lighting 
play in wrong surface landings? In the case of San Francisco, there was a difference in the expectations of the pilots, expecting to see two parallel runways that were lit for the nighttime operation. Instead, they only saw one, and then they saw some adjacent taxiway lighting systems, and they misconstrued those for the runway lights. So that, that's an example there where a construction project can change the expected lighting configuration of an airport. Also, what we found in an example here would be Philadelphia, that an absence of lighting also contributes to the events. Uh, for example, in Philadelphia, I believe it's runway 35. It's not a precision instrument runway. It doesn't have the typical approach lighting configuration uh, that you'd expect at you know, some of the other runways in Philadelphia. When we were examining uh, the lighting configuration, uh, FA Flight Program Operations that operates flight check aircraft uh, flew a couple of practice approaches at night and uh, videotaped it with the GoPro. And some of the comments from the pilot groups that were represented in the meeting described that the way they find that particular runway is they look for a black box or no lights, and that's what they use to align with until they get really close to the runway. As you can imagine, if you're first aligning with no lights and kind of the dark area that's in the vicinity of the runway, and then waiting to get closer to find the runway environment, that can contribute to events where pilots get confused and accidentally align with one of the adjacent taxiways, uh, which has happened multiple times in Philadelphia. Bridget, I want to talk a little bit about tower visibility. Controllers can't always see which runway aircraft are lined up on from where they sit as well. That's an issue? With regard to tower visibility, it's almost an assumption bias. So one thing I want to make clear is, as a pilot, don't assume the controller can see you. We have close proximity runways throughout the NAS, in particular San Francisco. I mentioned Boise before, and we talked about Philly as well. So controllers may have a difficult time visually acquiring you out the window because of those close proximity runways. In some of those cases, the runways are about five to 700 feet apart. So it's very challenging for them to actually acquire what landing surface you're tending on landing on out the window. And then construction. Jim, that's a problem as well in, in some of these instances. Most airports, especially in the good weather months, spring, summer, uh, the beginning of fall, uh, have significant construction projects, which are associated with runway closures, taxiway closures. And with that, it adds complexity for the pilots uh, to navigate that particular airport or taxi route and to stay vigilant and aware of where they are and, and where they should be. One of the tools that recently was developed by the uh, Airport Construction Advisory Council to help us navigate on airports that are under construction are the visual diagrams. Uh, they are available on the FAA webpage, but recently also ForeFlight has added them in as well, where they appear right at that particular airport. And I encourage our listeners to take a closer look and uh, use those tools when you're flying into an airport that has active construction. The way an airport is laid out is also sometimes problematic in terms of uh, determining which surface to land on. And I wonder if we might talk a little bit about that from a controller point of view first. Pete, I'd have to say that we do have similar airports with similar geometries that are in close proximity to one another. And a lot of that has to do with the prevailing winds for that region. 
So if you think about why an airport has that runway configuration, it's based off their winds, correct? So the closer another airport is in layout to that specific airport, you will also have similar geometry because of the wind forecast. We've talked about pilots approaching the wrong runway or approaching a taxiway, and also some of the factors that contribute to departing on taxiways. There are also known airport geometry configurations that lend themselves to pilots departing on the wrong runway. Tragically, in 2006 in Lexington, Kentucky, under the old airport design, there was one taxiway that went across two runway thresholds. Unfortunately, the pilots confused a very small, about 3,000-foot runway with the 8,000-foot runway that was for the air carrier departure. And tragically, 47 passengers were killed, two flight crew members, and there was only one survivor that had significant injuries in that event. While in Lexington, Kentucky, they've gone through significant runway configuration changes to ensure that that type of event does not happen again there, there are still some airports in our system that have a similar configuration. And basically, where you have one taxiway that brings you across in close proximity to two different uh, runways. One that's used by a lot of uh, corporate and business aviation pilots would be in uh, Sonoma County uh, that has a configuration that's similar to what we've seen that contribute to wrong runway takeoffs. Alex, can you draw any any big picture conclusions here? I think that the challenge with uh, wrong surface operations is potentially that we believe that it's not going to happen to us. We get complacent. We don't look closely enough at the charts. We don't repeat the clearances back with the runway numbers. We don't familiarize ourselves with the airport diagrams. Just a a number of pitfalls uh, that can happen. Let's talk for a moment about best practices here. Jim, talk to me about basic familiarity. In a couple of the cases where we talked about dual parallel runways and their adjacent taxiways, we've talked about construction uh, example, a lot of this seems to come down to to being, as Alex said, being prepared. Yeah, it really does build up Alex's point on the more preparation that a pilot does, understanding the environment that they're flying into, but also the physical changes at the location where they're either departing from or flying to. There are a lot of tools that are available to enhance situational awareness. Alex mentioned some of the work that's done by technology providers Flight, Garmin, Honeywell, that offer situational awareness products that show where the airplane is on an airport diagram and kind of moves around as the airplane taxis around the airport. In addition, understanding and using some of the products that the FAA provides, whether the NOTAM itself or some of the graphic representations of NOTAMs, which some of our technology providers are starting to work into their software, all of those help the pilot gain familiarization with the airport environment at that time where they're operating, not based on, you know, what they experienced maybe the last time they had been there or the last few times. What's really relevant is what do I have to be familiar with when I'm going to be arriving or departing? Because often those conditions are different day in and day out as some of the construction projects go in or as the uh, air traffic team is uh, using maybe a different configuration or flow into the runways that is not typical. And that preparation goes a long way to your success in doing so safely. No one ever intends to land on the wrong surface. Nobody ever departs with the intent to land on the wrong surface. So recognize that that can happen to you. 
So don't just go through your everyday motions and become complacent. Try to fight that complacency. Utilize your full call signs and your full runway assignment when someone gives you a clearance to land. We've seen some events where we've seen the landing clearance given, but the aircraft just replies with a clear to land. So what you're doing there is unintentionally increasing the risk potential because if you read back the wrong runway, you took that ability from the controller to identify that wrong element away. So please utilize your full call signs and your runway assignments in particular when you're receiving a clearance to land. Alex, I want to talk about instrument backup for just a second. I know that a lot of us use a a flight management system, but a lot of us also have backups to that. And I'm thinking about maybe some of the old steam gauges that we still have on even the most advanced cockpit aircraft. When we're flying the visual approach, it's always prudent to tune in a localizer or put in the RNAV approach if it exists to that particular runway so that we can get some instrument guidance and make sure that we're lined up with the correct surface at the correct airport. It's easy to get complacent, as Bridget was talking about, especially if we've been to that airport before, but potentially that day the conditions are different, the sun is in our face, and it's always good to have additional guidance. Jim, listening to the radios helps quite a bit because that is another way to obtain and maintain situational awareness. Really, most of the best practices can be tied into what pilots do day in and day out on every flight. You come up with a plan, you use the instruments and technology that's available to assist you in reducing your workload, Uh, things like putting in an instrument backup and using situational tools. As Bridget was mentioning from an air traffic controller's perspective, using the proper phraseology, your full call signs, the full runway assignments, add in a redundant layer where now the air traffic team has an opportunity to find out if there's some confusion between what the clearance instructions are and and what you're planning to conduct. And really the active listening part just helps tie in all those normal operations to give you the biggest situation awareness picture, listening to what other pilots are being cleared for, what aircraft you're following or is uh, following you. All those things help to enhance and, and round out and complete the situational awareness picture. Typically when used together, it makes for a normal and a safe flight that occurs 99% of the time. The reason why we're bringing out these best practices is Typically, it's when one of the links in the chain is not present, not working, or was just omitted because of complacency or fatigue or times like that. It's when something's missing in that normal flow is typically where we see these types of events. Bridget, there's also something called expectation bias. So in our system, our current system, we give pilots an expected runway, sometimes 50 plus miles away from the airport. But please realize that those feeder controllers, they're making the best educated guess on which runway you're going to actually receive. The controller who makes the ultimate decision is the final controller who clears you for the approach and also the tower controller that's clearing you to land. So pay extra emphasis on those two segments there when you're getting cleared for the approach and when you're being cleared to land to make sure that we're both on the same page. The decisions by the final controller as well as the tower controller are made based off of traffic that are moving on the ground as well as potentially in the air. And we have to be fluid and allow for changes to take place. But in particular, San Francisco is a prime example of an airport that has very little real estate for the amount of aircraft that they're moving around. 
So there are going to be changes sometimes from the runway that you were initially told to expect 50 plus miles away to the time where you get the approach clearance as well as that landing clearance. Make sure, double check, reconfirm that that is what you are lined up for. Well, now you're getting into gut feelings, spidey sense, if you will. And Bridget, that does play a part in trying to determine whether or not you've, you're headed in the right direction, headed for the right surface. Yes, it does. The main part here is if something doesn't feel right, double check and reconfirm. If you have any doubt, ask air traffic control. And a key thing to remember here is your number one safety feature is that button. So just call me. Let's wrap this up. Alex, I want to talk a little bit about some of the resources we might have to maybe do a little more research on wrong surface landings and how to prevent them. The FAA has uh, put together a great wrong surface video. It is on our website at nba.org slash wrong surface. We're going to have a number of resources there, including the video, as well as the materials that NATCA provides on uh, the best practices that we've talked about here. That's NBAA's Alex Gertzen, Director of Airports and Ground Infrastructure, along with NACA Runway Safety Representative Bridget Singh-Rotanakal and FAA Runway Safety Group Manager Jim Fee. Alex mentioned it, but let me give you that web address again. For more information on wrong surface issues and the ways in which we're fighting to reduce them, go to nbaa.org slash wrongsurface. And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan podcasts at Apple's iTunes website, at your favorite website for downloading podcasts, or from nbaa.org. I'm Pete Combs. Thanks for listening to Flight Plan.